Support for WMFE comes from JustCallMo.com and attorney Mo DeWitt. As a Central Florida native, Mo DeWitt is committed to offering legal guidance in personal injury cases such as car accidents and slip and falls. Offices in Orlando. More at JustCallMo.com. Welcome to Engage, leading conversations that matter. Engage explores Central Florida's issues and culture with new voices, new perspectives, and thought-provoking interviews. Engage is made possible with the support of members like you and inaugural sponsor, JustCallMo.com. Engage is hosted by Sharon Stone. You are listening to Engage on 90.7 WMFE. I'm Sharon Stone. Coming up, we'll look at trends in teen smoking and the state of film production in the state. First, though, the Alabama Supreme Court issued a ruling that determined frozen embryos are to hold the same consideration as children when defining life. The case dealt with an IVF clinic where a couple's embryos were accidentally destroyed. The couple sought to file a wrongful death suit, and the state Supreme Court decided the suit could proceed. This ruling was hailed by supporters of the anti-abortion movement. The significance of the Alabama Supreme Court decision is to recognize that which science has recognized for a long time, which is that human life begins and is unique from the moment of fertilization and conception. It's a unique human being at that point, and it's entitled to worth and value and constitutional protection. That's Daniel Schmidt. Associate Vice President of Legal Affairs with the Liberty Council. That's a nonprofit that has offices in Central Florida and offers legal advocacy for Christian initiatives. In Alabama, they have an amendment to their constitution called the Sanctity of Human Life Amendment, which recognizes that all government agencies and entities must protect the inherent value of human life from the moment of fertilization and conception. That's what led to this decision, which was embryos that were stored in a cryogenic nursery, they call it, that had been fertilized. And when they were destroyed, the parents were able to bring an unlawful death action or a wrongful death action uh, because they had terminated human life. Uh, that's, That's very significant because it recognized the inherent humanity of all embryos and life from the moment of conception and fertilization. Here in Florida, they are fighting a ballot measure that would codify a woman's right to an abortion. Now, IVF providers in the state are keeping a keen eye on both our lawmakers and the Alabama ruling. Joining us now live on the line is Dr. Mark Trollis, a board-certified reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist with the IVF Center in Winter Park. Dr. Trollis, thank you so much for joining us here on Engage. My pleasure, Sharon, and thank you so much for inviting me. Let me start with this for our audience. Could you just briefly summarize what IVF is and how it works related to infertility? Sure. Uh, IVF or in vitro fertilization is really fertilization outside the body. So a brief biology lesson, a woman ovulates one egg, releases one egg from the ovary every month. Okay. And that's a normal menstrual cycle. So the body is preparing for pregnancy almost on a monthly basis, really. In vitro fertilization, is where stimulating hormones are trying to increase the number of eggs that a woman 
actually will release on a monthly basis, all right? So one egg is naturally released, hundreds uh, are lost on a monthly basis, okay? So giving ovarian stimulating hormones, we super ovulate a woman to produce more than one egg that's mature that we can use then to fertilize. The more eggs that are able to be created into embryos, the higher the chance of success for the woman. So after about 10, 12 days of stimulation, we monitor them every several days with ultrasounds and blood work. Then we will do what's called an egg retrieval, typically under intravenous conscious sedation. Right now, office surgery center, where most are, are done across the country. So we put a needle, uh, ultrasound guided needle uh, aspiration device through the vagina into the ovary and vacuum out the eggs. It takes about 15 minutes or so to do. Uh, the patient's under sedation, and then she's really able to leave within the hour. Those eggs are identified in the laboratory by the microscope because they are microscopic, and then we inseminate about four to six hours later with the partner's sperm or source of sperm desired. Then we put them in the incubator, allow the embryos to develop for ultimately embryo transfer. Sometimes they just want to freeze their eggs. Sometimes they want to freeze the embryos. And we do freeze embryos that are not utilized after the embryo transfer. So that's the basics of IVF. Okay. Help me understand then this Alabama ruling. Which stage is it impacting in terms of what you do in this procedure? Well, it would be the stage of insemination. So on the day of the egg retrieval and sperm are added, within that 24-hour period, an embryo is, is, has developed. So this ruling, as it were, applies to an embryo, which is a fertilized egg. But um, a lot can be said about what has occurred uh, by this ruling of making the Wrongful Death Act that was applying to a minor child uh, is quite the um, leap to make it an intrauterine pregnancy and even further extrauterine collection of cells that uh, are labeled as an embryo. So that was never identified in the law of what a minor child is, uh, but it has been now interpreted as being intrauterine as well as extrauterine tissue. Okay, so Alabama's largest hospital is halting IVF treatments after this court ruling. Is that a reasonable reaction, in your opinion? Well, I think the ruling was not necessarily reasonable in terms of this, uh, because what the Supreme Court did in Alabama was not distinguish between life and the potential for life. The potential for life is an embryo, but it, they did not make that definition uh, and they basically just had a blanket statement regarding that. So there isn't a clinic in Alabama, I think, that feels comfortable freezing embryos because of the, there's so many questions, Sharon, about this process. There's more questions than answers at this time. So say we freeze embryos and then we thaw one and it doesn't survive. Is that murder? Is that clinic going to be then susceptible to criminal charges? We don't know what's going on at this point, but it is a very concerning, pervasive movement that people feel is being stimulated by the anti-abortion uh, movement. Uh, you know, there's in, in Louisiana, uh, there's a law that prohibits doctors from discarding uh, any viable embryos that are still dividing. Now, we 
we, you know, in your intro, the sanctity of life was mentioned. I don't think there's a field of medicine that is more pro-life than IVF because we're helping the one in six couple uh, uh, people in the world that are trying to conceive. And we're doing everything to do that. But, you know, unfortunately, what this ruling has done was without justification, without any medical or legal support. Uh, and and it, it, it's affecting a field that has been effective for nearly half a century. So it's now resulting in the unjustified withholding of known treatment to one in six people that are struggling to build a family when the AMA and the World Health Organization has labeled infertility a disease. Now the Alabama ruling has now prevented that disease from being treated. Are you concerned about this movement that you mentioned coming into Florida? And what are you what are you hearing from your community, from doctors, or maybe even your patients? Well, everybody is concerned, of course, but I don't think Florida is alone in its concern. Right? This what's called personhood, trying to label an embryo as a person, uh, has been around for several years and it has been voted down by whenever it has reached a ballot. But I don't think there's any um, state that is going to feel safe from the concern that's going on. Um, now, there is a bill that's, uh, that has been presented uh, in, in the Congress called the Duckworth-Murray-Wild Bill, that's an IVF Protection Act to really safeguard IVF from any of these types of laws that could impair the ability for patients to be treated. But you know, Sharon, uh, there's consequences to ponder uh, about this. And you know, is this infringing on the reproductive rights of, of women uh, to be able to have a child? Uh, it's turning embryo crop preservation, which is freezing crop preservation tanks into frozen nurseries, essentially, right? Um, now what about chromosomally abnormal embryos? You know, we're not going to transfer them, but this ruling in Alabama uh, causes patients to pay for frozen embryos in perpetuity uh, because they can't discard them. And these embryos will not be transferred because they're abnormal. What about even further corollaries of this, Sharon, is that will frozen embryos compel child support? following divorce, right? And, and if it is a child, uh, are they going to get tax credit for their embryos that are, that are frozen? You know, this is a, uh, not just for reproductive medicine, but this is a very concerning time uh, because there are some religious um, influences uh, in the scientific world that really should be distinguished. If this were to progress in Florida, what would your next step look like? Well, you know, until something is absolutely finalized, I, I try not to alarm uh, my staff or patients. You know, infertility patients are, are, have suffered uh, with anxiety and stress over their inability to have a child. You know, when you're trying to conceive, the whole world looks pregnant. My wife and I were infertility patients for 10 years. Uh, and we had gone through multiple cycles of IVF, and then finally uh, we were blessed with adopting our children. But if we, if this has ever reached the point that legally prohibits the ability uh, to discard embryos and consider embryos uh, as unborn children that are protected under the uh, 
uh, uh, the uh, Wrongful Death Act, you know, there's going to be a lot of concerns over what type of reproductive medicine we're able to apply. Our hands would be tied from being able to apply treatment that we know that can help many, many women. One About 2% of live births in this country are from IVF. So you basically, uh, the corollary is to say that, uh, well, a person comes in with heart uh, disease, they have multiple abnormalities of the heart, that they, they could benefit from having a stent to save their life. But, you know, a stent is not natural. Uh, we, we don't think that we should be able to uh, apply that technology. You know, it's, it's tying hands of a physician that is trying to help pro-life actually bring life into the world. Dr. Mark Trellis is the founder of the IVF Center in Winter Park. Thank you so much, doctor, for joining us today here. My pleasure, Sharon. Thank you. There's more ahead here on Engage on 90.7 WMFE. The State of Tobacco report shows that Florida is failing. DEI comes to D&D. Engage is available on demand at WMFE.org and the WMFE mobile app or anywhere that you get your podcasts. Listening to Engage on 90.7 WMFE. I'm Sharon Stone. Ahead on this program, the world of Dungeons and Dragons and role playing games has traditionally been populated by a very specific demographic. There was definitely Correct. a stereotype of like just like white, male, grungy, doesn't have very much like personal hygiene, and that and that still sticks in a lot of people's heads. We will talk with a pair of game shop owners who are turning that stereotype on its head. First, though, the American Lung Association gave the state of Florida an F grade for failing to protect its residents from the dangers of tobacco. The annual State of Tobacco report cites a lack of attention to mitigating sales and use. The data shows a disproportionate rate of smoking among the state's black population. And it says Florida fails to create effective restrictions on flavored products that target teens. Dr. Candace Jones is a pediatrician in Orlando working with patients from infancy through adulthood. We talked to her about the trends she's seeing in youth tobacco and vape use, what she's hearing from kids and parents, and ways she feels the state could do better at fighting smoking and vaping. We have to go all the way back to development when we talk about kids and why they do what they do. And as a pediatrician, we know that the minds of children are developing. So anytime that any industry can market to them, make things cool, make it look like all the kids are doing it, have wonderful appealing flavors and packaging, making it undetectable. I'm doing something, you know, taboo. It looks like a pen. They can't tell, you know. So when we appeal to them and they're developing mine, we've got them when we target our advertising and all all of these things. And so that's what has happened with our young people in this trap of flavors, of crafty packaging, of bells and whistles, um, and a product that is addictive, nicotine. 
um, on a young developing mind. And that is what is causing this increase in youth using these um, electronic delivery um, uh, systems for nicotine and then as a gateway back to cigarettes. The evidence shows that. Meaning they start with the vaping and then turn to cigarettes? The vaping is the most common tobacco product used by young people. And the evidence shows it is a gateway to you back to cigarettes and not as it's marketing as as it's marketed as a cessation tool. It doesn't help them not smoke cigarettes or stop smoking cigarettes. It actually is a gateway for young people to go on to smoke cigarettes. Part of the report that was critical, the association accused tobacco companies of targeting teens with those flavored products you were just talking about, such as e-cigarettes that are sold with these fruity flavors. Tobacco companies have said they are not intending to reach children. Their intended customers are adults. Are you saying that that's not possible? Well, regardless as to what their intentions are, which we can question, we know what's happening on the ground. And young people are gravitating to those products, the flavors and the bells and whistles. And so once you know, you see this growth in young people using your products, the responsible thing to do would be to try to stop that. Dr. Jones, what do kids tell you when they tell you they smoke? You know, they don't want to tell you. So at least they know they shouldn't be. Parents, you know, know, frown upon that and they know they shouldn't be. They know um, that they need to hide it. That's why they go for the ones that look like the uh, flash drives or the pens or whatever. So they know that they shouldn't be using the products. Um, so So pediatricians do need to be crafty when we ask about these um, touchy subjects that teens know they shouldn't be doing. And we should be screening and asking questions that will yield the truth so that we can counsel and um, empower young people to turn away or even stop using the products. You can tell when somebody smoked. You can smell it on their clothes. Can you tell when somebody vapes? Not necessarily. It, it is, you know, I have a very strong sense of smell. And you're right. I can smell cigarette smoke on families in the clinic when they come through the door or once, even once they've made it back to the exam room, exam room and I'm coming in 30 minutes to an hour later. I can smell cigarette smoke. I can smell marijuana. But I can't really smell the vape aerosol, that liquid. And sometimes they're doing it in the room and I can't smell it. But the thing about that is, is that's more dangerous, right? Because, you know, smoking and marijuana, those things, we can't do those in public places, right? Because yeah. of the second and third hand smoke. With the vape aerosol, you know, it's undetectable and it is contaminated with harmful um, uh, smoke or aerosol. There are toxins there. And so we do need to get that out of the environment, especially in a pediatrician's office where there's young babies. Um, So it can be a problem that hidden secondhand smoke um, that is in the environment. And that is a point of advocacy for us taking it out of our places where we live, work, and play. That is so interesting. My goodness. As part of this report, it's among those most hurt by tobacco products are Orange County's black residents. And even Orange County's Department of Health indicates a quarter of black men living in the county smoke cigarettes. Do you see that same disparity in younger smokers? 
I know about that statistic, but I don't know if it rings true for Black youth as well. I would guess that it does, but I can't say with certainty. My patient population is predominantly people of color. And I would say that a number of my patients use these products and we talk about these products. And in within their homes, if someone is smoking and the, the likely of them using menthol-based um, tobacco products, which is more harmful and heavily marketed to the African-American community is problematic. Any thoughts on whether part of the problem is tobacco marketing or if more needs to be done to access programs to help you quit? I think it's all of it. This is not going to be an either or, it's a both and. It's all of it. And so I think we do have to hit this huge problem with a multi-level approach. Um, Number one, we know there has been regulation, um, but there are gaps in regulation. And so at a state, a local, a federal level, that can be tightened up. Uh, there can be more efforts. For for example, we know right now we can't, there's a ban to sell e-cigarette products to young people under 18. You know, there are calls uh, to make that 21. Um, and so that's just one thing, but there are many other things that could curb advertising, curb marketing, um, make the packaging more safe for young people not to get into them. When we think about our poison control centers having increased calls to young children getting into the solutions and the harm it can do to them as far as, as it being a poison. So all of those things, you know, banning internet cells, there are many points of, of regulation that can be tightened upon. We need to get rid of these flavors, the menthol, as you mentioned, and all, and all the catchy flavors that young people really um, gravitate to. So there are so many things, even at a state or local level, taxing these products, e-cigarettes, in comparable rates that we tax cigarettes, and then removing them from our local environments, creating tobacco-free laws and ordinances that make places that kids live, work, and play, all of us, more safe, where we're not getting that secondhand smoke from these vape products. And Dr. Jones, what impacts do you see on these young patients from either smoking or vaping? You know, I think the impact is something we have to follow over time. And I think that is an area where we continue to have research, right, that we need that research. But I think what we know is that addictive potential of it and the gateway effect of I've normalized this, the cigarette or the vaping instrument, and now what type of risk does it put me in to now go on to try other things? Oh, I did that. That wasn't so bad. They said it was bad. Oh, okay. Maybe this, you know, marijuana or this other thing, you know, some other type of drug. And so those are the things that worry me um, and that we know are the risk and dangers to young people. Health effects, absolutely. You know, heart disease, cancer, these products contain carcinogens, all types of toxins, antifreeze. Who wants to be smoking antifreeze is in some of these liquids. Oh, gosh. And all liquids are not, not the same, right? You don't know what you're getting. And so, you know, all types of health problems are, are potential from smoking these devices. Dr. Candace Jones is a pediatrician in Central Florida. Tobacco companies have said their intended customers are adults. Mm-hmm. 
Florida concluded a fund that provided a tax incentive to attract the film and TV production industry to the state. A program that forfeited nearly $300 million in tax revenue generates more than a billion dollars in in-state expenditures by production projects. Since then, production companies have gone to Georgia and the Carolinas to film, states that offer favorable incentives. Film commissioner and executive director of Film Tampa Bay, Tyler Martinolik says other states offer tax breaks or other incentives that are appealing. In 2015, which was the last year we had a statewide incentive, we were actually the third largest filming destination in the United States. Uh, since then, we've precipitously fallen, and now we're not even in the top 20. Laura Chin is an actor and director and a Florida native. Her most recent project as director is Suncoast. This is a semi-autobiographical film telling the story of Chin's terminally ill brother, and the national figure who was staying at his hospital. The story takes place in Florida. It was shot in Georgia due to these tax incentives. Chin joined Engage to talk about Suncoast and the challenges of filming in Florida. She started the conversation by describing the real-life experience that led to filming Suncoast. When I was 18, my brother was in hospice in Pinellas Park, and uh, we lived in Clearwater. And Terry Schiavo was also there in 2005 at the same time. So my mom and I were kind of, you know, visiting hospice, going in and out of that facility. Um, and there was protesters, media and all of that. And uh, my brother passed away like five days after her. So we were really there, you know, the entire time. So that's the, you know, that, that's where the idea sort of started to form. And, and my own experiences with grief and, and trying to tell a story about grief uh, and then so the other details were, were invented. And just to refresh people's memory, for several years, there was that legal battle over removing Terry Schiavo's feeding tube while in a persistent vegetative state before she died in Florida in 2005 in hospice. And so you're dealing with that media circus and trying to deal with your what's happening with your own family at the same time. Yeah, that that's, you know, that's sort of why I wanted to talk about it because it is it's an interesting thing to be you know you, you sort of see how personal the terry shivo story was to her family you know to, to everyone in her family to her husband to her parents you know and they all had to to sort of process all that media too and then you know my my mother and i and, and my father who lived in a different state he would fly in and uh, my aunt would come and you know so my whole family was kind of also a part of this thing um, and it, and it is, it's so personal when you're losing someone, it's such a personal kind of intimate, you know, you want it to be like an intimate, small experience. And then it's, you're sort of this backdrop of this huge experience is going on outside the window. When did you know that your story could be something bigger in terms of a screenplay? You know, I, I started thinking about it. it really, you know, this is so true with almost everything I've written is that I talk about it to someone and they go, what? <laughs> because I think when it, things are happening to you. You're like, oh, this is just normal. You know, you're just, this is just how we deal with life. Life just kind of ha things happen. 
Um, and then when I talk about it to someone, if I mentioned to someone, you know, if I'm talking about my brother and I mentioned, oh yeah, that whole Terry Shiva thing was happening, you know, at the same time, people are like, what? And so the show I did, Florida Girls, it was the same thing. I'd tell a story and people would react. And so that that's sort of given me my feedback on, in terms of what might be interesting to people is, is how people react when I'm kind of casually mentioning a tidbit about my life. Was it hard to open up about something so personal? You know, I've gone to, I've done so much therapy. I've talked about it, you know, I've talked so much about it um, in so many different ways, so many different kinds of therapy. I, and that it really, I definitely got emotional while writing the script and I, I, I wrote a very personal book and I got emotional while writing that. Um, but there's such a benefit of sharing vulnerable stories when people react, no matter how many people, you know, one person reading something you wrote and saying, I relate to that, or I feel seen, or I went through that is so healing. And the feeling of human connection is so worth it, you know, so that it's kind of, it's like, yes, it's vulnerable, but it's extremely worth it. Do you feel like that's two way? It's both healing for you and the people that you're hearing from sharing with you? Oh gosh, I hope it's healing for them. I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, I hope it's healing for them, it, but it is, it is for me, <laughs> you know, it's, it's when you go through something challenging, sometimes it feels like you're the only one, you know, especially you go on social media and everyone's out having fun and, you know, <laughs> life seems like it's a ball for everybody else. And so it, the way that our world is set up, it can sometimes feel like you're the only one going through something hard and you can sort of feel like an alien in that way. And so, yeah, somebody saying this happened to me too. The first time that happened, the first time somebody said, hey, I, I, I read something or I watched something you made and it, I really resonated with it. I was like, oh my God, that is an incredible feeling, <laughs> just feeling connected. You mentioned being involved with writing Florida Girls and we're talking about Suncoast now. What is it about these Florida films? Do you feel like there's this expectation that it has to be an unbelievable or just wild story? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Um, you know, I mean, I think Florida in the media, you know, and Florida Man and the Twitter, and it's gotten a reputation for being a very intense place. But, um, you know, and it's funny, it is intense at the same time, you know, like you think about the weather that comes through Florida, like these extremes, these climate extremes and hurricanes and sinkholes. I mean, sinkholes are wild. <laughs> the idea that your backyard could just fall into the earth. Like there is a sort of just natural extremeness to the climate and to the environment that might contribute to some of the behavior but I also, you know, I see headlines from Arizona, you know, that are pretty colorful and far out human behavior. And you see headlines from New Jersey and you see, you know, and, and Michigan and you start to realize like, oh, I think the media just sort of likes to pick up on Florida stories and spread them around because people read them and are entertained by like, oh, what's Florida man up to? Um, but I don't necessarily think it's actually this major outlier in our country as if no one else ever behaves this way, you know? Mm -hmm. And this was, as we're talking about, set in Florida. Ironically, you didn't film it in Florida. Can you talk about where you did film this? I wanted to film in Florida so badly, especially in Clearwater, because um, I think one movie has been filmed in Clearwater, um, A Dolphin Tale. Um, yeah, that it was like a, a movie about winter. The dolphin had our, we have her, we had her. I don't know if she's still there, but we had her at our aquarium. And um, and so that was the one movie that was filmed there. And I really wanted to film a movie there because it's so 
cinematic. The West Coast of Florida is so beautiful. The sunsets are so beautiful. The sand is truly like, you know, paradise sand, like white talcum powder, soft, beautiful sand. Um, and there's just things about the colors that you can't really find elsewhere. And so I really wanted to film there. But there's no tax credit in Florida. The, Florida lost their tax credit, I believe, in 2016 for filmmaking, they no longer offer a tax credit. And so um, we ended up in Charleston and they, you know, they they gave us a tax credit that made it possible to make the movie. Like it, it got down to, you know, cause I was kind of being stubborn and I was like, no, I really want to film in Florida, let's figure it out. And as people crunched the numbers and really tried to, our producers really passionately, cause our um, Kevin Chinoy and Francesca Silvestri live in Miami and they produce the Florida project and they love, you know, Florida films. And so everybody was supporting this idea of how do we figure this out? How do we make this work? But it just, it just, we couldn't do it. We wouldn't have been able to make the film. So we had to go to Charleston and Charleston was amazing. I mean, they were really helpful and they really, their film commission is super supportive of filmmakers and they gave us a, a wonderful tax credit and um, it made it possible, you know, but then we went to Clearwater for like three days and filmed exteriors to try to capture some of that unique Florida beauty. Um, but yeah, it was, it was definitely not, not ideal to not be able to shoot in the state we were trying to talk about. Sure. Was that the main obstacle that you ran into in terms of not being able to film in Florida? No that was it. Credit. Yeah, that, was, that it. was really it. Yeah, because they're, you know, I, I, we were told that, you know, there's crew in Tampa. There's people that, you know, like people want to work and, and, and really good people. We know we were hearing, oh, this amazing guy, you know, in Tampa does this thing. And this other amazing person does this thing. And there's this woman that can do that, you know. So we were like, yeah, let's film there. You know, let's hire a local crew. Let's do it. No, <laughs> it was not to be. What do you hope people take away when they watch Suncoast? I mean, I hope they take away whatever they want to, you know, like it's hard to tell people, you know, especially with movies. One of my favorite things is people messaging me about these different moments in the ending that resonated with them. And some of those moments I'm like, oh, I didn't see it that way, you know, um, but I love that they did, you know, I love that their takeaway was, you know, whatever it is, you know, because I think that's what's so amazing about art. But, it, you know, it's definitely a, a, you know, a movie about grief. It's lighthearted and it's comedic, but it's about grief at its core and, and the way people grieve and the way people treat each other when they're grieving. And, you know, I think ultimately the idea is that I think grief and loss can be bearable if you have people around you to support you, you know, if you, if you have those relationships that help keep you buoyed through the experience, you can survive it, you know, and it, it's ultimately a mother daughter movie and about this idea that they're each grieving differently, which is causing them to have a rift between them. But if they can come together, they can get through it, you know, is, is ultimately the idea. And, but somebody might watch it and feel like that's not the idea at all. So I'm open. <laughs> And as you were doing this film, you get to work with names like Woody Harrelson, Laura Linney. How was that experience working with these A-listers? It's so hard to find the words. The whole thing has felt like, a, like an out-of-body experience. They're two of the kindest. It's so funny because they're the two, two of the most talented people I've ever worked with, two of the most successful people I've ever worked with, and then two of the kindest people I've ever worked with. <laughs> so you're like, how? Did we get these blessings? I don't, I don't know. I'm so thankful that they agreed to do the movie. I'm so thankful they responded to the script. I learned so much from watching them. And at the same time, they let me direct the movie and they let it 
feel like it was my story. Um, and then they added so much to the movie, so much to the characters beyond my imagination of what an actor is is capable of doing. You know, I it was really, yeah, they're they're amazing. I'm very, very thankful for them. Laura Chin is the director of Suncoast. It is currently streaming on Hulu. Coming up, the world of role-playing games is expanding to include all gamers. You're listening to Engage on 90.7 WMFE. Listening to Engage on WMFE 90.7, I'm Sharon Stone. The growing tabletop gaming industry is serious business. These inventors are in the business of card and board games, not video game consoles. It can take time for the gamers to find their ideal gaming community, especially if they don't feel like they fit into this multi-billion dollar industry. Gamers like Jenna Vong, we met her at the Haven Games as she was playing with a group of friends. She explained why she enjoys coming to Haven. One of the things that I find really challenging as a woman is when you go into a gaming store, a lot of times to play a new game, it's very intimidating to come into a new space, people you don't know, and be treated fairly. And one of the things that I've really loved about Haven is they've made an effort to make it a space for everybody, regardless of your skill level, regardless of your familiarity with the game. And they've really made it a point to make it an open space for everybody. So now we come with friends that we made here. And we come on our free time when they don't host events to learn new games like sorcery, which I just am learning today. Matthew and Allie Heffelfinger are the husband and wife owners of the Haven Games. Their business model is predicated on inclusivity and providing a safe gaming space for everybody. I met with them at their store and event venue in Castleberry, and I asked them to describe the typical gamer. We're all gamers, <laughs> just different varieties. <laughs> I think we're fortunate enough right now that there's not a stereotype any longer. Because I know growing hmm. up, I was always a, a nerdy girl. I really liked Pokemon and Star Wars and stuff like that. And that didn't fit into the, I like Disney princesses and I wear pink. Now, anyone can be a gamer. Anyone can be a nerd. And it's cool to be a nerd. And it's yeah. really, really great. So... I mean, when you look around and see all the different faces and people in our store, there's not one stereotype of the guy with thick-rimmed glasses wearing a pocket protector. Like, we're not there anymore, and it's really, really great that just, listen, that walking around and walking into the store, you can see any kind of person. Like, I don't, I don't think we have a specific, this is what a gaming nerd is anymore. Yeah, there's definitely, like, that, like, stereotype from, you know, like when we were growing up, there was definitely Correct. a stereotype of like just like white male, grungy, doesn't have very much like personal hygiene, and that and that still sticks in a lot of people's heads. And there's still a lot of stores that kind of like are stuck in that era, where like they don't clean up the store, everything's kind of dirty, but like there's a space, and that's all people care about. Um, and we wanted to 
kind of be the antithesis of that. You know, clean, put together, respectable, I guess you could say. Uh, grown up, we want in a way. everyone to feel welcome. Because even, yeah. even in, like, my early teens and 20s going to play Magic at other stores, I was always one of two girls. And now if you look around here, they're... There's more than three of us. Like we're we're doing it, <laughs> and so it's it's really cool that I think in 2024 we can kind of sit around and realize that like, it, a gamer is literally anyone. You know. Part of the reason that was so important is because what you saw your wife go through as a gaming. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so. I mean, you can tell the story. Uh, people well, just, like, judging you and thinking that you don't know anything well, about a game just because you're a girl. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, used to have bright colored hair. I'm a little bit small in stature, and so they'd be like, oh, you're just here with your boyfriend. Like, you don't know anything about magic. And I'd be like, no, like, I really like this game. I'm here because I want to be here. If he wanted to play without me, he could. I'm here because I also want to play. So, like, they would try to explain the cards to me, and I'm like, no, I, I can read. I, I know what they say. <laughs> so it it got really frustrating to go to these tournaments with him because I didn't enjoy playing by myself because I would always be against someone who was just talking down to me the entire time and like you know that was when I was in my early 20s that's 10 years ago like yeah. and but now we we wanted to create a space that never felt like that for anyone yeah and that's uh, just applies across like anybody in the store mm -hmm. it's not just like oh like my wife did this, so we're going to protect people like my wife. It's just like, no, like, nobody, nobody should, feel like should that. be playing a game and feel like somebody's just like, oh, you don't know anything. Automatically, I just assume you don't know anything because of X, Y, or Z. It's just like, you know, just, you know sportsmanship applies across everybody. But just also, be chill if, you and enjoy the game. <laughs> if you don't know something, you, I don't want anyone to feel afraid to ask. If you want to get <laughs> into a game that's existed for a long time and you've never played it, come in Good. and ask. At, like, that's one of the things we train our staff to be able to talk about board games and talk about card games and stuff because we want to be able to fought, like we want that sense of community yeah. so that if people would like to come in and learn new games they can yeah there's no no time that you're more vulnerable than when you're like oh I want to learn a new thing and somebody like treats you poorly or like oh you don't know about this and you're like oh well now I kind of don't want to know about this because if that's what I'm going to get getting into this like I'm out I cut my losses I haven't invested any time I'm done but, you know, if you're welcomed and, you know, explained things without being condescending or anything like that, you're going to have a good time. Matthew went on to talk about the origins of gaming culture and the irony of how it led to the toxicity that gamers like the Heffelfingers are trying to flush from the community. It's always been a place for people that felt different. Because even in the 80s, when you were playing D&D with your friends, uh, you were playing D&D with your friends because somebody probably bullied you because you were a nerd and you didn't, uh, you weren't playing football and you weren't interested in sports. Not everybody was like that, but there were a lot of people that that's what brought them to D&D and that's where they made friends and that's where their life was, was in that game. Uh, which is part of why like mothers and parents like were easily convinced that it was like a satanic thing because their kids would not do anything outside, which is what you were supposed to do. And you would just be playing games in your basement or in the shed or wherever you, <laughs> you felt away from everybody else because you didn't feel accepted by other people, which is why it never really made sense to me that the nerd community was also very gatekeepy to people of color or, you know, people of, like, transgender or, you know, people of different sexual orientations. Because, like, the reason you came here was because you were rejected by someone else or you were bullied by someone else. Why are you passing that, why are you passing that down, you know? So I think, I think we're coming to a point where, like, there's so many people that have 
you know, they feel different and they don't feel accepted by other people that are a part of this community now that we're getting to a point where it's like everybody is realizing, oh, we're all here because we're different or, you know, we're all different just in general. Um, so that it's, it's becoming less and less common that I have to, like, keep people in check. I've only had to say a few things to a few people just like, hey, uh, by the way, you shouldn't talk like that. <laughs> Don't say that. Uh, that word's not a good word. <laughs> Hella Farhat moved to Orlando two years ago with her wife. Hella works as a game master at Haven. As a lesbian gamer from a Palestinian family, she brings a unique perspective from the gaming world. She joined us at the store to talk about her role there and her experiences entering the gaming community. I do a lot of talking to people who are new into the scene. I really like trying to get people into it a little bit more just because it can be intimidating. So I like to make it feel as not intimidating as physically possible because the barrier for entry can be quite a lot. So um, we do a lot of card games here. So we explain the card games, the board games, how the games work, and a little bit of, if you're interested in this, how you get started. I think what originally just drew me to the story was I was talking to someone that comes, she just feels really comfortable here, like as a woman and people who feel different feel good here. Do you do you feel that way? I work very hard to make it feel that way. Like I already felt really comfortable when I first came in here and I make it like a personal mission of mine to feel even more comfortable. Um, I know that women coming into the space it can feel intimidating, minorities coming into the space it feels intimidating and one thing I'm always really happy about, we have like a little LGBT section over there where we have like little dice and the proceeds go to a charity for um, LGBT rights advocacy, the Trevor Project. So um, I'm always happy when people come in and oftentimes like we've had a couple times people come in and they buy the dice and they're really happy and they're like, I've never had dice like this and it's really nice and I don't have to tell people my identity before we play games. They just see my dice and they know and it's not a conversation. Or um, like we've had young people come in and their parents leave and they come back and they're like, oh, I bought this dice while my dad was in the store because it makes me feel seen and, you know, I'm just not ready to talk to them about it, but it's nice for me to have, makes me feel happy. So stuff like that is beautiful. Do you feel like that is still the case or have we moved away from that? Or is there a concerted effort here not to do that? I would say that we have a concerted effort here to, because there's a certain toxicity associated with that kind of person, where um, it's the almost like paradoxically, they're like, there's no women in the scene. And then the women show up and they're like, get out of here. <laughs> so we work really hard to be like, this is a welcoming place. Nobody here is unwelcome. Gender identity, background, minority status of any kind, you are welcome here. And I think that's part of like why it's called The Haven, is like it's a haven for everybody, you know? So we really emphasize here that, um, we used to have it playing, but we don't anymore. Um, rules of the store, which are like, if you're going to swear at someone excessively over like a card game, you're not welcome anymore. If you're going to obviously say any kind of like slurs in here, you're no longer welcome. Um, anything that makes someone feel like they are less than, you're not welcome in the store. Do you have a favorite game that you can tell us about? 
Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm a big fan of D&D. I think that's honestly, <laughs> you might not know this, but it's a little bit of a trope that like LGBT people are very into D&D. Um, but I am, my wife is, we play it all the time. Um, D&D, I feel like is a really good way. It used to be very male dominated, very like um, boys club only. And I work, I honestly have been trying to get a game going for like women's only game uh, for the store because a lot of women come in and they tell me they want to play and they don't know how and they feel intimidated and they don't want to just join a random game because you might get a guy who's mouth breathing and saying weird stuff at you. So I get it. And for me personally, I'm Palestinian. So I work really hard to encourage other Arab people to come because it's a nice form of like self-expression, relaxation, unwinding. And when I DM, which is what I do, uh, which means I run the games, I write the scenarios, I uh, work on like how people interact with the world and the story, I put a lot of my background in it. And it is a little bit of a way for me to, you know, because I'm not home anymore, obviously, to bring people into my world a little bit and show them parts of the world they haven't considered before. Hella Farhat is a game master at Haven Games. That's all for today's edition of Engage. Join us Tuesday afternoon at 3 o'clock. I'm Sharon Stone. Thank you for the company. All Things Considered is coming up.